0: Hello, good morning, Ambassador Church. Pastor Mike here. If you have your Bible, will you please open it up to Jonah chapter one, we're gonna read verses one through four. While you're turning there, I'll tell you that we are in our series, in the second week of our series uh, called Jonah, nation, race, justice, and mercy. Um, We talked last week about the fact that that byline for this series exists because that's what the book stands to tell us as a congregation, that's what the book is about. Uh, and I'll say again a few things that we are working through this book to see what God has for us as a congregation. We are staging in a sense a rescue effort to save our congregation from a superficial reading of the Bible because the typical reading of the book of Jonah that misreads the book of Jonah sees it as a children's story that simply stands to tell us a moral lesson about being good and not being bad. But the book is about much more than that And it speaks into our culture, it speaks into the life of our church, it should speak into our lives because that's God's purpose for his word. And so we're reading it with an open mind and an open heart to say, God, what do you have for us, Ambassador Church? Jonah is the, to recap a bit, the only Old Testament book that's a narrative about a prophet. The book starts as a word that comes to Jonah and it is a word from God, like a normal prophetic book, but then the story starts to get very interesting. It unravels a little bit as we read even in, in today's passage. Uh, and then it just it's the, one of the more interesting books of the Bible that, again, forces us to read it the way God wants us to read it and ask the question, God, what do you have to teach us? Uh, Jonah is a terrible person in this book. He's foolish and he's ungodly, and it's meant to reflect on our worst tendencies when we are not mindful, when we forget about one very important thing that we're talking about today, God's redemptive plan, God's plan to save the world and the way he does it through his grace. So what I mean to say is we kind of live our lives on autopilot sometimes and something has to shake us out of that, wake us up from that to remind us of who God is and what his grace is like so that we live in line with God's will. Uh, Have you ever done something in your life that is kind of on autopilot? Like I, I think sometimes when I'm driving, I'll be just driving for 20, 30 minutes, an hour, even longer than that. And then suddenly you just wake up. And you realize that you've been driving, you've been making turns, your turn signal, driving 80 miles an hour on the freeway, but you were just totally unaware of it. It's amazing how the human mind can do complex, like important tasks, but be completely unaware and checked out. Uh, Sometimes when I'm cleaning the house, I'm just cleaning, I got my headphones in, I'm listening to music, and I just wake up and the floors have been mopped and cleaned. It's weird. We're just on autopilot. Uh, I also, for a long time, uh, sleepwalk. I, when I was single, especially before I was married, I, I sleptwalk probably all the time. I never knew that I was doing it because I wasn't married and no one would tell me, hey, you do weird things in the middle of the night. But once I got married, I found out that my primary function when I sleepwalk, which I don't do too much these days, is to clean. And my, in some part of my brain while I sleep would just wake up in the middle of the night and think, this place is a dump. This laundry needs folding. The bathroom needs to be Windexed. Uh, you know, the, the laundry needs to be folded. And I would wake up in the middle of the night and think, I just I have to clean this place. And so it's very productive. But my brain on autopilot. Well, that's how we live much of our lives as well. And it, cognitive psychology, behavioral psychology, they call this decision theory. What I mean to say is we live much of our lives reacting to the situations of our life, and we think that we're making choices to follow God or to not follow God, to live a life of sin, uh, away from God's will, or to live a life of honoring the Lord. But decision theory tells us that the decisions that you think you make in life are actually rooted in beliefs that you've deeply held for some time. Now, just track with me on this because there's a, there's a point to it. Decision theory shows us that our choices to either obey or disobey God, in this instance, are rooted in beliefs that we have held for years, months. And so down the road, beyond, before a, an ungodly decision that you've made, at some point earlier on that path, you made the decision in your mind that you don't believe that God is trustworthy or good, or uh, gracious, or worthy of your obedience. And so you think you're making choices, but those choices are actually rooted in something that's way deeper. Earlier on in the road where you made the decision, I don't know if I can trust the Lord. So if we have that in our hearts, it stands to reason that we need to bring that out into the light. Let it be influenced by the gospel. Take the unfaithful parts of our lives, and parts of our, the, the parts of us that want to run away from God's will, and expose them to who God is. And that's what we have to do this morning. Reading his word. Seeing, is he good? Is he trustworthy? Is he wonderful? What are the attributes of God that would make me able to change my belief structure and then have a choice that honors God and follows him? So today, uh, we read a passage about Jonah walking away from the Lord. The sermon title for today is Ignoring God's Plan for Your Life. Let's read our passage. Jonah 1, through 1-4. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed to Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying a fare, he went aboard and sailed to Tarshish to flee from the Lord, then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. Today, we're going to walk through this passage and a few other things, uh, seeing that God has a redemptive plan that we can either accept or reject, and see the consequences of that decision in our lives. And you'll see it in our passage, just very briefly. Point one: that God states His redemptive plan in verses one and two. Jonah ran away from that plan in verse three, and we see the consequences of him running in verse four. Now, before we move on, I have asked Lydia Wilds, one of the staff members and leaders here at our church, to walk us through this passage this morning and to help us understand all three of these points, to kind of color in the lines on what's going on in this passage and to walk us through it. And so she's going to preach to us today of these three points, and then I'll come in after and close up. Lydia Wilds, come on up.
1: All right, so yes, the entire book of Jonah starts with God communicating his redemptive plan for the wicked city of Nineveh. It literally starts with the word of the Lord came to Jonah. Uh, So God is telling Jonah exactly what he wants Jonah to do. God says, "Uh, go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me. So you know, when you're talking to someone and it's hard to understand them, especially with all of these masks right now, it can be really easy to confuse the communication, to misunderstand what someone's saying, to mishear a word or to um, interpret something incorrectly. Uh, Well, that's not what happened with Jonah here. God was explicitly clear in what he wanted and in his call for Jonah to go preach to the Ninevites. Now, if you heard Mike or Abel preach last week, You'll remember that Nineveh is the capital is the capital city of the Assyrian Empire. So this made Nineveh a great city, but also a wicked city. Nineveh can be thought to be the worst of the worst. They were cruel beyond belief, and the stories of their wickedness are gruesome. It's terrible. But God had compassion on them. God wanted to give them a chance to know Him and be saved by Him. So he chose to send Jonah. Now it can be thought that Jonah is the first foreign missionary. He's the first prophet to be sent to a a foreign nation. So far, the prophets have been prophesying to the nation of Israel, but Jonah was sent to a foreign nation, the, the city of Nineveh. And not only did God send him to a different nation, God sent him to their enemy nation. Jonah was an Israelite and Assyria was Israel's worst enemy. Like I said, Nineveh was wicked, and the Israelites and Assyria were enemies. So think about the biggest rivalries there are. When I think about rivalries, I think sports. And right now we're wrapping up baseball season with the World Series coming up. So when I think sports rivalries, I think Dodgers and Giants. Now I hear that you Giants fans, you guys always want the, wait, Yeah, you Giants fans, you always want the Dodgers to lose, no matter who they're playing against. And vice versa, for you Dodgers fans, you always want the Giants to lose, no matter who they're playing. So you always want your rivalry, your enemy team, to lose. Another rivalry could be that of Apple and really anything else. Apple versus Microsoft, Apple versus Android. You get the picture. So this is about how Jonah felt towards Nineveh. Jonah didn't want anything good to happen for Nineveh. He didn't want them to experience God's compassion or God's grace or God's love. So Jonah decided for God that the Ninevites didn't need to know God's goodness. They didn't need to know God and they didn't need to be saved by God. So Jonah took it into his own hands and Jonah ran from God's plan. Which we see in verse 3 here. It reads But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee the Lord. Now, it's obvious here that Jonah is running from God's very clear instructions, God's very clear call. But this isn't just a small act of rebellion. Oh no, Jonah chose to run as far away in the opposite direction as possible. You see, Nineveh was to the east of where Jonah was, but Jonah headed for Tarshish. Tarshish was to the west. So first off, he went in the opposite direction. But Tarshish was the furthest western known city at that time. So Jonah not only went in the opposite direction, he literally went as far away as humanly possible as he could possibly think to get away from his call for God. from God. Jonah was running from God's redemptive plan, from God's plan for Nineveh to know him. So throughout the book of Jonah, we see Jonah running from God in two different ways, an irreligious way and a religious way. If we look in the New Testament, we actually see these two ways um these two ways of running in the parable of the prodigal son as well so to quickly recap that parable you have two brothers the younger brother wants his father's inheritance before his father dies so that he can go leave the family run off to live his life how he wants to but the older brother he remains faithful and stays with the father working in the fields so in jonah Jonah's first act of running from God is similar to that of the younger brother. They both run away, run away in immoral ways. Um, the younger brother runs away and squanders his father's inheritance and, the, and then Jonah disobeys God. So this is the obvious way that we would normally think about running away from God. It's a simple way. Um, it's the way of diso- directly disobeying God. Like when kids, they directly disobey their parents, Um, The child thinks that they know what's best for themselves and therefore they act accordingly even when this goes against the parent's very clear instructions and usually those instructions are for the child's safety. So there's that one way, the, the normal way that we would normally see running away from God and disobedience. But the other way we don't often think about as much. It's the religious way or the moral way. We see this later in the book of Jonah and in the character of the older brother of the parable. So from this way, this is this is when we obey out of a means of gaining what we want, a means to seek control, to please God. We think, if I do this, then God will bless me with this. I see this a lot in the Pharisees, in their very legalistic way of approaching their religion. It feels very work-based, and rewards based if I do this God then you'll totally please me with this right or bless me with this but honestly you guys it's a fake intimacy with God it's one based on entitlement where you feel like you deserve the best of the best so you're gonna you're gonna manipulate the situation to uh, to get that better reward to get that better um, that better reward that you want it's running away from a genuine, humble relationship with God and running towards a rewards-based religion instead. Now, God wants us to obey Him, but God wants us to obey Him because God is sovereign. He is the authority figure and control of all the details, who works all things according to His will and according to His redemptive plan. Now, God's redemptive plan is for all people to know God and to be in relationship with Him. And so if that is God's desire, then our desire should be that of obedience towards God. Because when we obey God, God saves people for him. So a few years ago, I had almost the opportunity, the opportunity was approaching to possibly move home. Um, There was a job that I always thought I wanted, and it was becoming available. But when I heard this news, I was hesitant. I didn't know if I actually wanted to move home at the time or wanted this job at that time. The timing seemed off and so I just, I directly asked God, I was like, God, what is your will for this? Do you want me to stay here or do I wait for this job to become available and apply for it? What do you want, God? I'll never forget his answer. It wasn't an audible response, but it was clearly an answer from God. I heard, if you want to obey me, you'll stay here and you won't even apply for the job. Now there's a key phrase, very key phrase in there. If you want to obey me, you see, I could have still applied for that job and seen if I could have gotten it. I was really curious if I could have gotten the job or not. And then I could have decided, but that would have crossed the line into disobeying God and sinning. God had a plan for me to continue his work here and he prepared a wonderful leader to do his work in my hometown. God had a plan, and I was to obey it. God had a plan for Jonah, but Jonah didn't see the need to obey it. So when we don't obey God's plan, when we run from him, which is sinning, there's consequences, which we see in verse four. Verse four reads, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose, that the ship threatened to break up. When there's sin, there's consequences. Jonah sinned against God, so Jonah, so God sent a great storm to Jonah. What's interesting about verse four is the word "great" here. The Hebrew word for "great" is gadol in this verse. So the Hebrew word for "great" here is gadol, which is the same word used to describe Nineveh. I love what Timothy Keller had to say about this. In his book, The Prodigal Prophet, Keller says, if Jonah refuses to go into a great city, he will go into a great storm. Why do we try to fight God so much? God is sovereign. He has authority over all things. So God will get his way. (laughs) So why do we try to fight him by disobeying and sinning against him? because we're prideful. We want to be right. We want to get our way. We don't want to admit our errors or our sins because let's be honest, that's embarrassing and vulnerable and we as human beings don't like that. We want to be right and we want our way. So there was this time when I was a child and in elementary school, I don't remember what grade or anything, but I was doing homework and I don't remember what subject it was either. But for the sake of this story let's say math because i didn't understand what i was doing and that's a really good guess for me um i did not understand this math problem so i asked my dad to help me now he looked at it he understood it and he started explaining it to me so i'm sitting there and it took me a couple times to understand it he had to explain it a few times before i understand it but once he did once i understood it i did not let my dad know this instead I sat there in my little child brain and I tried figuring out how in the world to change this math problem so my very incorrect answer was correct. We all know math has one correct answer. That's why a lot of people love math, because they can figure it out, one clear answer, and the other answers are wrong. So I, as a child, was trying to sit there and twist this math problem around so that I could be right when I was. Very clearly wrong so my pride made me want to be right and didn't want to admit that I was wrong now I did suffer the consequences of that argument with my dad and just like here Jonah had a clear call from God Jonah had a clear call from God and Jonah ran from that call and now Jonah is facing the great consequences of that disobedience in the means of a great storm sent by God So now Mike is going to come back up, and he's going to wrap us up with some practical application points for the life of the church, for the life of the church, and for us.
0: Well, thank you, Lydia, for your teaching this morning. Um, I want to close with three quick application points, and really kind of narrow us toward some some implementation, application, and action. Um, in our hearts, but also with some behaviors that we can implement for in response to who God is and how he's revealed himself in these first four verses. Um, so our big idea for this morning was that God has a redemptive plan that he's doing in the world. He is saving the world. He uses Christians to enact his redemptive plan to make the world saved on, in the souls of people as well as redeemed culturally speaking, physically helping the poor and those in need Uh, causing racial reconciliation, uh, creating systems of justice instead of injustice. God has a plan that he's working right now to redeem the world. And he will finish that process when Jesus returns and brings heaven to earth. That plan is something that we can accept or reject and face the consequences of that. Our lives look like a bunch of yeses to Jesus or a bunch of noes to Jesus. And then our attitude, our hearts, our identity is shaped by all the yeses and the times that we trust in who God is, in, our, in all the different areas of our life, or all the times where we say, God, I don't trust you. And it goes back in my mind to the, the same G words that we've used a lot at Ambassador, that um, part of knowing God and obeying him and following him and his plan for our lives is trusting, not just in um, that I can make a decision for God, but trusting it in my heart of hearts that he's good, that he loves me, that he's great and powerful. Or that he's gracious and he indeed does forgive me through what Christ has done on the cross. Or that he's glorious and weighty and important enough that he warrants my obedience. So, as I mentioned before about behavioral theory, about decision theory, if we look just to the times and the circumstances when we said no to God, we might forget that there is a sin beneath the sin. Below the surface of the water, so to speak, is a sin where we say, God, I don't know know if you're good, I don't know if you're great. Gracious or glorious. So, this is our opportunity as a church to even pause and recognize that there are parts of our lives that are unfaithful to God, untrusting to God. We need to bring them out into that light and let them be influenced by the light that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, my three kind of like application points here is that if that is you, if that's a, a situation you are in in your life, then one, you need a storm. Two, you need a transformation of identity to your core. And thirdly, you need to jump in to the water. Uh, if you look in a few verses further on in our passage, uh, Daniel, Teeter and Abel are going to preach on them next week, but we can still reference them because uh, the emphasis of some of the sermon for next week will be different. If you look in verse um, 15, we see that the story progresses from the storm where there's pagans on the ship. And the pagans recognize that they need to pray out to all of their gods. And so they're saying, Everyone, if you're religious in any way, just pray out to your different gods. And then Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the ship, avoiding the responsibility for what he's done. In the end, as the story progresses, we as, as the story progresses, we see that the sailors wake up Jonah. They say, Pray to your God. Who are you? What is your identity? He says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. I believe in the God of the universe, the God of the sea and the land and everything. He he makes this kind of statement of faith. And then because he already told them some things about his life, it comes out that he is running from God. Jonah realizes that he's the reason for the storm. And so he says, throw me into the sea to save yourself. And in verse 15, they took Jonah, they threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. Verse 16, At this, the men greatly feared the Lord and they offered up sacrifices to the Lord and the pagan sailors made vows to the Lord. If you look back in verse 12, it says, pick me up, throw me into the sea and it will become calm. I know this is my fault because of the, for the great storm that is upon you. You need these storms that rage up when we disobey God and forget his redemptive plan. Sometimes when bad things happen to us in life, we say, why would God ever do this? But if sin didn't hurt, if sin in your life wasn't a wrecking ball that hurt other people around you, then it wouldn't be graceful or merciful of God to let that happen. It's a part of God's plan that when we, what is for God's glory is for our good. What is for God's glory is good for society and good for the people around us. And then to the extent that we sin, it's a wrecking ball that hurts other people. Our selfishness, our gossip, our self-centeredness, and our self-saving attitude and identity at the core is something that always promises to save, but because it's sin, it's destructive. So you need a storm, and it's God's grace on you that there are storms that flare up in life and then cause you, like the pagans in this book, to cry out to your God and say, I need saving. I'm reminded of it. I'm out of money. I'm lacking acceptance. I failed at school or I failed at work. My family's falling apart. I'm not the parent that I thought I would be. Those are storms. And it's God's grace that he puts them in your life so that not everything just works out when you're functioning as your own savior. And your own Lord. If there's a storm in your life right now, especially, secondly, you need a transformation of identity. The sailors asked Jonah, who are you? And he says, I serve the God of the Bible. But, and in the end, he was functioning in this part of his life, believing that he should live life on his own terms, and in a sense, try and be his own savior and his own Lord. He ran away from God to, as Lydia said, to the complete uh, west even though God called him to go to the East because he was saying, I need to take my life in my own hands to become my own savior and my own Lord to save me from the hell of the fear of preaching to a violent country or the fear of seeing another race and another culture be elevated above my own. And we'll get into it as we work through the book, but whatever reasons he ran away from God that we'll keep searching for in this book, it was saving him from a hell of uncertainty because he didn't trust that God was good or that God was great. And we do this in our own lives as well. Soren Kierkegaard wrote in a book called uh, Sickness Unto Death in the 1800s, but I love the byline. It kind of gives you a better description of it. It's uh, a Christian psychology of upbuilding and awakening. A Christian psychological exposition, actually, of upbuilding and awakening. And he says that sin is the despair that results from trying to be yourself without God. And to paraphrase, he goes on in the section of the book to say, trying to find yourself away from God, uh, if you do that, you will find an identity that is deeply unstable. And that's true of all of our lives. And again, I'm trying to just explain to us for application that behind our sinful Behavior is a sinful identity where we're trying to find ourselves to please ourselves, to justify ourselves, make ourselves right, and prove ourselves valuable in the world apart from God. But you don't have the power to save yourself, you don't have the power to provide an identity that's lasting and that's stable. We live in a culture that does say you need to go search inside of your heart. To find out who you are. And actually that process in the dominant culture that we live in says if you express your desires and kind of test to see what you like in life, that's where you'll find your core identity. Instead, the Bible says there is an identity that is ready to be given to you by a merciful, loving, wonderful God. And that can help give you a lasting, concrete identity that is more permanent than anything else that you can give yourself. And this lastly and to tie it around to the gospel, the good news of who Jesus is, you need to jump in. In Jonah, he finally comes to the realization, though some of his repentance is imperfect, even in every part of this book, Jonah realizes that he needs to be thrown in into the watery chaos to, at, at, at the risk of his own death, the certainty of his own death, to save these imperfect, repentant sailors that are on the boat. He says, throw me in, I'll die, but you'll be saved. And here we see a shadow of a deeper reality that we have in Jesus Christ. In Matthew 12, Jesus says, hey, if you're looking for a sign of my validation that I'm the son of God, Jesus says in Matthew 12, the sign that I'm going to give you is the sign of the prophet of Jonah. Matthew 12, 38 Uh, Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law came to Jesus and said, Teacher, we want a sign from you. He answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign, but none will be given a sign sign except for that of the prophet of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the heart of the earth, I'm sorry, as, as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh, from the book of Jonah, Will stand up in the judgment in the end times with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Even our passage today gives us a, a foretaste of what it looks like for a Savior to say, Throw me in to the chaos, and in Christ's uh, sense, to the chaos of God's judgment and wrath at sin, so that you can be saved. And because we know something about the rest of the story, we know a a God who has proved himself to be so great that he's powerful over a sin, that he has a solution to sin. He's great. Christ's death on the cross was the solution. That we know something about this God, that he is good. So much that Christ himself was willing to go to death, though he's the only perfect human who has ever lived, and to be thrown into the ocean of God's wrath for our sake. We know he's glorious because he resurrected from the the heart of the earth in power, trustworthy and weighty he is. And we know he's gracious because of that death on the cross that he forgives us of all those sins. Journey with us as we keep going through this book and talk about some very important topics about race and nation next week. Let me pray.